our sermon text, Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to pick up at verse number 32, where we left off, verse 32. Uh, we're going to go all the way down to the end of chapter 5, so I'm going to read some and then skip a, li- a little bit just for the sake of time. But uh, we're, we're going to pick up where we left off, chapter 4, verse 32, down to the end of chapter 5, which is verse 42. So there's this little summary statement. If you see there on the sermon notes page, I try to give a little uh, sort of outline of it. There's this little summary statement here in verse 40, uh, 32 that says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. Uh, And then verse number 36 and verse 37 are a positive example of that. Thus Joseph, who was also called to the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, meaning he's of the tribe of the priests, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then in chapter 5, the first couple of verses here gives us a negative example of what, uh, of what we, uh, the contrast of what we just saw. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain, at your, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And then verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now in verse 12, uh, there's this little uh, summary again. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up, and now is this section here on persecution. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Speaking of Jesus, that is. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what uh, this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. That's chapter 4. We just saw that last Sunday. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, this is Gamaliel speaking to the council, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people. After him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the, pre- in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called on the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, meaning Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. And all of God's people say, Well, we are uh, attempting in our little backyard uh, to build a little extension uh, of our patio. Uh, I've asked a few of you for some tools, so, you, so some of you know about that. Uh, and we're trying to do it by ourselves. A math teacher and a pastor trying to build a patio. All right, good time. So at least my wife knows all the math. I have no idea. Uh, I have no idea how, you know, how are we supposed to know how high the rocks are underneath the patio? And how do you slope it one quarter inch per like, foot, I think it is? Or it's like, I don't know, an inch every four feet or eight, eight feet. I have no idea how to do that. Uh, I have no idea angles. I have, I'm just absolutely clueless when it comes to math. So uh, we're trying to do that best we can. The wife's, of course, taking the lead on that because this guy up here has no idea how to build stuff. Um, but I dug a big hole in the backyard. So uh, I'm good at that, at least. You know, I got that. Uh, dug through all the clay. Okay. Um, so, uh, the wife and I, uh, were outlining the steps of this, um, and there's a lot of steps, you know, I just thought you'd dig a hole, throw a bunch of rocks down, and bada bing, bada boom, you know, there you go, you got a patio, you know, pretty simple. Uh, we're trying to do it though, we're trying to set it up, there's a lot of steps, uh, you gotta dig, you gotta put rocks down, you gotta compact the rocks, you gotta put sand down, then you got a special kind of sand, I, I come to find out. Uh, then you put down the, 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 the stones, the paver stones, uh, and you gotta make sure that they're good to go, and they're all lined up with the patio, but they're also sloped down so that when it rains, like it just did, uh, we don't flood our front, uh, our back door. Uh, and then you got to put more sand on top. You got to water, you got to brush it off first and you got to water it because it gets hard as cement and it keeps it all together. So a lot of steps, a lot of steps uh, just to build uh, like a, I don't even know, 10 foot by 10 foot, we'll say, a uh, little patio off to the side that makes our patio a tad bit bigger. Uh, in the backyard. So there's a lot more steps uh, than I expected, but uh, we're giving it the old college try. I have a PhD afterwards. I should be able to do something, right? Uh, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's coming up f- futile here. We'll see. Uh, if you come over at my house and you walk on my, pa- my new patio and you fall into the abyss, you know, uh, thankfully I have homeowner's insurance. So building stuff, right? It takes time. It takes uh, thoughtfulness. There's lots of steps to it. Lots of, you know, there's a whole process, processes, and so forth. Uh, it's, it's good stuff. Jesus says, or said, still says to us, that very famous statement of Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, I will build my church. Uh, Jesus is a builder. He was a carpenter, in fact, as we know. 
And, and so amazingly, he is that God who in the beginning said, let there be and all things came to be. God is, uh, Jesus is a, is a creator. Uh, he makes stuff. He's made all the stuff that there is and he builds his church. I will build my church. The question is how? How does he do that? How does he do that? Definitely not as frustratingly uh, and as difficult as it is uh, for, for me to build a little 10 by 10 patio uh, in the backyard, but Jesus builds his church. How does he do that? Well, we've been seeing so far up to this point in the book of Acts. If you haven't been here, it's fine. I'll give you a quick little definition, a little summary of uh, the first four plus chapters now. Uh, how does Jesus build his church? That's really what's going on here in the book of Acts. And Jesus builds his church by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, through the means of the preaching of the apostles, or the preaching of the word, in the occasion of internal corruption and external persecution. It's, a lot of, it's kind of a lot there, but uh, there's, there's three important prepositions in that little summary statement. Jesus builds his church by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through the means of the preaching of the word, in the occasion of both internal corruption in the church and external persecution coming from outside the church. That's how Jesus built his church. He's given the Holy Spirit, he sent the apostles, and all that happens in the context of struggle, of struggle. Uh, that's not the, quite the definition that you'll get uh, of how to build a church. Uh, if you were to uh, go online or uh, listen to some church growth gurus and their lectures, if uh, you would pick up some church growth material, there's a whole market, uh, if you don't know that already, uh, there's a whole book industry on quote-unquote church growth. Um, and uh, it's a you know, multi-million dollar industry. This is not the definition that they would give. That Jesus builds his church by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word in the occasion of internal corruption and external persecution. Uh, this is not the kind of definition, this is not the kind of mission statement uh, that you'll find at the local uh, big box, you know, evangelical uh, church. But we'll have to, we'll, it'll have to do for us. It's, it's what we see here so far in these early chapters of Acts. Let me just uh, point out a few passages. I'm going to have us turn for a couple of minutes here uh, before we dive into those points that are listed out. But let me show you this, how, how the Lord is building the church and how despite the oppositions and the, the struggles inside the church, outside the church, that Christ has poured out his Holy Spirit and the word of God is being proclaimed to the apostles and the church is growing nonetheless. So back in chapter 2 we saw after Peter's Pentecost sermon in verse 41, uh, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then again in Acts 2 verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was by the, the power of the Holy Spirit and through the preaching of the word that the church was growing. It was added to. There's a, a, a definable, quantifiable number of believers. In chapter 4, we saw verse number 4, we saw that last, uh, last Sunday, I believe. We read about Peter and John being arrested for preaching that very same word. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So 3,000 on Pentecost, now 5,000 we saw uh, in, that, in those early chapters. Again, chapter 5 that we just looked at. Uh, Satan infiltrates the church through Ananias and through Sapphira, but many, uh, excuse me, and more than ever, verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Notice that. After the, Satan himself had, had inspired. Why has Satan filled your heart to conceive of this plan, Ananias? But more than ever, believers were added. We'll see in chapter 6, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday morning, that they were that as the church is now growing and it's becoming more and more uh, multi-ethnic, there are tensions 
in the church between, uh, between Greek-speaking widows and Hebrew-speaking women, uh, widows, or Aramaic-speaking widows. Chapter 6, verse 7, though. Despite the internal tensions and squabbles and difficulties, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Chapter 9, if you want to turn, you can. Chapter 9, uh, Paul began to preach in Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 31. Excuse me, verse 31. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied through Paul's preaching. Chapter 12, James was killed. Peter was released from prison and they had been persecuted heavily. But, chapter 12, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Just two more examples. Chapter number 19. Paul preaches and there's this exorcism that he performs. He casts out demons out of people just as Jesus did. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail Mightily, It's always interesting. We're going to see this in Acts, how Luke uses this phrase, the word increased. When he says the church was growing, it was because the word was increasing. And the word was prevailing mightily. Right? It's through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word, despite or in the context of opposition. And finally, Paul was imprisoned in Rome in the, the end of the book, chapter 28, of Acts uh, says that although he was imprisoned, he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. He's in prison, but he's unhindered because he speaks the word. As long as he has a mouth to speak and a breath to vibrate his vocal cords and a mind to conceive of ideas, he would preach with boldness, without hindrance. And so, the irony that we're going to see here, but also throughout the book, the irony of church growth is that even though Satan infiltrates and causes corruption, and especially Satan inspires enemies and causes persecution, the church grows. The Spirit has been poured out, the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the Word of God, and despite even though Satan infiltrates and causes corruption and inspires enemies and causes persecution, the church grows. That's the irony of church growth. In other words, it has zero and nothing, ultimately has nothing to do with you and me. The Spirit of God, through the preaching of the Word, despite opposition. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church. And what else did he say right after that? I will build my church and, or but, the gates of hell shall not prevail. So in our passage here, again, I mentioned at the beginning as I read it, you have in chapter 4, verse 32 to 35, this little summary that's kind of summarizing all that we've seen so far. The church is growing. The church is of one heart and mind uh, and soul. Uh, They were caring for those within their midst. There's a positive example there of, of Joseph. He's nicknamed Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's the Barnabas that goes along with the Apostle Paul later on, uh, on his missionary journeys. There's a negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they, they will see they do sell their property, but they hold back some. And then there's this persecution. So we have internal uh, uh, corruption, but we also have external persecution here. But yet, despite that, that those summary statements tell us that the church increased. The apostles were preaching, not ceasing, from, the, from house to house and in the, publicly in the temple to preach that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus. So I want us to see here this morning this irony of church growth. And just briefly here, notice, first of all, that, that Satan, we learn from these passages, that Satan has multiple schemes to try to squash the church, to try to shrink the church, to try to snuff out the light of the church, to try to obliterate the church to try to discourage the church. Satan has multiple schemes. Paul tells us this, of course, in Ephesians 6, that uh, there are many schemes of the devil. 
many schemes of the devil that he uses, uh, and we're to take up the shield of faith to fight and to extinguish those schemes. And two of them are mentioned here. Two of them are mentioned here. Uh, so we, we have to know the devil's schemes. We've got to know our enemy in order for us to go not just on the defense with our shield of faith, but we also have to go on the offensive with that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, uh, to spiritually battle uh, and to engage with Satan. We've, we've got to know our enemy. We've got to know our opponent, just like in sports or war or politics or, or monopoly money, right? We play monopoly. You've got to know what, your, what the person to the right and the left like to do. What's their strategy? You've got to know your opponents in order to engage uh, and hopefully win. The first scheme is moral corruption. This is this internal, the context of the church's growth is within uh, internal corruption. Satan inspires this uh, from within. And that summary statement again tells us in chapter 432 uh, and following that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Right? Notice that unity statement. They had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them because those who owned lands or houses sold them. One example was uh, Joseph, or as we know him as Barnabas. He, we are told there, uh, he also sold a field uh, and he brought that money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We'll come back to the apostles' feet. That's in chapter 6. What's the resolution to that? But uh, just notice there that there's a positive example of the church. Uh, it, it's unity. It's care uh, for one another. Uh, Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, also sold a, pr- a piece of property. That's chapter 5, verse 1 and following. Yet the contrast here between Joseph, Barnabas, and Ananias and Sapphira is not that every Christian sold everything that they had, but Ananias and Sapphira wouldn't. But in the fact, the contrast is the fact that Ananias and Sapphira had made a public vow to God to support the church with those proceeds only to hold some back. In other words, there's a warning here. There's an implicit warning here uh, to us that there are Christians who who are in it for the show, who are in it for uh, what they can get out of it, who are in it for, you know, for the, the, little, the, the quick little Instagram post. They go on and they show what they've sold or what they've given or how generous they've been or all that they've done to the church. The problem wasn't that uh, they, they, they sold and gave some to the church, they kept some for themselves. Peter even says, you know, as long as you had the property, was it in your control? There's no communism here, in other words. There, there's no mandate for the church that it has, everyone has to sell all they have and give it to the church. Uh, that's not being taught here at all. Peter even says there that private property, that you have the right to your stuff. And even after you sell it, you've got the right to your stuff because it's yours. God gave it to you. The issue is that they publicly made a vow that we're going to sell our stuff just like Barnabas and like everyone else is doing, and we're going to give it to the church, and, and they got praise for that, but internally they were corrupted. They wanted all the praise, but they only wanted to give a small part of what they had, and they kept the rest for themselves. So the warning. We're not to, do, to flaunt, as Jesus said, to flaunt our giving, our good deeds, whatever it might be, to get the praise of men. If you promise to God that you're going to do X, Y, and Z to support the church, then that's between you and God, and do it. You might, you can tell someone that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm coming into some money or, you know, I have some time or I have some other uh, ability to do something uh, and I, and I want to use that to bless the church and, and to be a big supporter uh, in this particular way. That's fine, but then do it. You hold back in your heart, that's what the problem is. They kept back some of the proceeds, we're told, verse, verse 2. In fact, what's interesting is that Luke uses here uh, this, this, this language here uh, is of stealing, this holding back is literally stealing. That's what he says. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, which means stealing. Uh, and it actually comes from the, from the Old Testament as it was written in Hebrew, translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint translation. Uh, and Luke uses here the very same word 
that's used in Joshua chapter number 6 of Achan. They went into Jericho and they were to devote everything to destruction. It, was all, it all belonged to God. Not one thing was to be left and taken uh, as plunder for the Israelites. It all belonged to God. But Achan saw this, you know, this, this, this nice clothing, and he saw this big, this big bag of silver and this big chunk of gold, this big bar of gold. He, hide, he takes it, and he hides it under his tent. What happens to him? He's, he's killed, right? He's put to death. He wouldn't devote that stuff to the Lord, and so what happens is he and all the things that belong to him, they are devoted to the Lord, and he's taken out. Luke uses the same word here, drawing our mind back to the similar kind of an idea, that these things are to be devoted to God, but yet these examples, these negative examples, they're holding back something uh, in secret, and they're both put to death here. In this case, a miraculous death uh, somehow from God himself. And this was the opportunity for Satan to scheme. Peter says there in verse 3 and 4, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to man. It's not that you told us that you're going to give us the money from this field. No, you've lied to God. The church in verse 31, notice, notice the, the contrast. The church was filled with the Holy Spirit we saw last Sunday. Ananias is filled with whom? Satan. Notice the contrast. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit, and Ananias is filled with Satan. Now, a text like this brings us opportunity to, to address an objection to the Christian faith, uh, because a lot of times people say, and we've all heard it, you know, the, the sort of tried and true, you know, the church is so full of hypocrites and so forth, uh, or the church, you know, we hear, we hear that in a different uh, way today. You know, the church in its history, you know, oftentimes has been on the side of oppression, of the oppressors, not the oppressed. How can I believe in this God, this Jesus? How can I become a Christian? Why would I ever do something when the church has been on the side, the, the losing side of history? In, in answer to that is, yeah, you're right. We got, we got guys and gals like Ananias and Sapphira. The, ch- the church is full of hypocrites. We don't believe in any way whatsoever that, 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 the, that even the earliest church was this golden age of sinless perfection where the apostles are literally walking on water and everyone else is completely 100% absolutely devoted to Christ and love their neighbor as themselves. And no, that everyone has a sin nature. And in fact, uh, that objection of, well, there's so many hypocrites or the church is on the side of, 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 of oppressors in history and so forth. It only goes to show that the reality of the church and the existence of the church of Jesus Christ for the past 2,000 years uh, defies human explanation. That there's a supernatural reason why the church of Jesus Christ existed and still exists. Despite all the internal problems the church has. Despite all the sin that still runs in the veins of Christians today. Despite the supernatural reality of evil exemplified by Satan. We're not materialists. We're not naturalists. We don't believe that the world is just, this is all there is, and all the explanations somehow come from science or scientism, as C.S. Lewis called it. There's, there's a supernatural realm. And we, we get a little glimpse behind the veil here, the Ananias and Sapphira, where, where they're, they're, they're selling dirt. And they take physical coins and they give them to a real human being to, to buy food for someone in need. That's tangible stuff that you can see. There's something else going on here. There's supernatural. There's this realm that you can't see. 
So the objection, that, yeah, the church is so full of hypocrites, has been the side of, the, of, of, of oppressors for so long. And, and we can say, yes, it has been. But the fact that the church still exists after Satan infiltrated it, and still does, testifies to the reality that Jesus Christ is right. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We believe in the supernatural. There's no human explanation why the church exists. How did it survive just the Roman Empire? How did it survive? Because Jesus said so. Notice uh, quickly here, more quickly, uh, the second scheme is, is persecution of the church from the outside. So we have internal inspiration of the devil, uh, infiltration, but we also have outside persecution. And you see that in the latter part of our text this morning, uh, chapter 5, verse 17 to the end. Uh, there were many signs and wonders there, in that little summary statement again, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. Many signs and wonders with the hands of the apostles in very public places like Solomon's portico that's in the temple complex. And in response to that, they've already been preaching and they've already been arrested. They've already been told not to preach in Jesus' name. And they're out there doing it again. They're out there preaching again. And they're out there now doing signs and wonders again in public. And so the high priest, the party, the Sadducees, these are the aristocrats, the, the upper crust of the, of the Jewish ruling class. They're filled with jealousy and arrested the apostles. The high priest in that, in that family line that I mentioned many moons ago, you know, that they had bought that influence uh, after the time of Alexander the Great and when that, uh, uh, that region of the world uh, uh, be, be, became free, there was a certain family that bought influence and the ability to name themselves the high priestly line. Uh, and you have here the Sadducees. Uh, these are the, the, uh, uh, the rulers of the Israelites. These are the rulers of the rulers, we might say. There's the whole Jewish council, but there are these in particular. You know, these, would be, these would be kind of like the World Economic Forum guys. Right? That's going on right now, so you've know, got to mention that in a sermon. Right? Uh, these are the people that say, you know, isn't it amazing that we, the select few in this room, uh, you know, we've been chosen to save the planet. You probably saw that speech this week. Right? I mean, what audacity. Who chose you to do that, right? But, but I don't want to get into politics, but uh, the, this is the kind of people that are jealous. You know, the church exists and it's not going according to the script. You're not following the narrative. You're not doing the things that, that, that the upper crust and the supposed select, the elect, the select, say you're supposed to do. You know, you're not conforming. And so they arrest them. What else can they do? They arrest them. But you can't just trot Christians into death because, you know, nowadays, of course, there, there are a billion of them. And in those days, they were afraid because the, the crowds were so loud, uh, so large. They were being healed and they were hearing the gospel. They put them in prison for a night. Not a pleasant place. If you know anything about Roman prisons, not a pleasant place. Literally just holes in the ground, caves in the ground with a, with a lid, and you put a guard there, and if you need any food or water, you better know somebody outside to bring it in because you ain't getting anything inside there from them. But an angel shows up. Notice, again, it's the supernatural here. Opening the prison doors, and then so that the story tells us that when they go back to find them, to bring them back and haul them back from the council, the door is closed and it's locked. An angel of the Lord appeared, opened the, door, opened the prison doors, and brought them out. And they go out, and the first thing that they do, again, like I said last Sunday, you know, it's not to have a church potluck and celebration, you know. They go preach. In the temple, notice, in public, not in private. The Christian faith isn't a private matter between just us and God. You know that, right? The Christian faith is not just a little private pious thing that we hold in our little prayer closet in our heart. You know, we're, we're Christian here for an hour or so, you know, and, you know, uh, or we go home and we do our little private stuff, but the rest of the time, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, we're Americans or whatever it might be, you know, we, and we're just societal people. The Christian faith is a public thing. Jesus Christ rose again. People knew it. They saw an empty tomb. 
And so the apostles go into the temple, a very public place, and preach. And it greatly perplexes the Israelite leaders, verse 24. They haul them back, verse 27. They do their thing, right? They, you can't put them to death, so they, they, they listen to Gamaliel. They beat them up a little bit. Most likely that meant uh, 39 lashes. The Romans gave a strict limit of lashes. 30, 40 minus 1, 39 lashes. Which oftentimes kills you. So they, they, they rough them up, they beat them up, they, uh, whatever they did, they go out and they preach. Right? They wanted to kill them, but they couldn't. So they charged them, verse 40, not to preach in Jesus' name. Now, persecution, of course, changes, and, it, and it's different in different places, and I'm not saying exactly the same uh, in the time and place we live, but in a, the point is that, the, that, is that Satan inspires external pressures upon the church, persecution. In this case, it was to use religious leaders who were also sort of like a city council for Jerusalem, but also for all of Israel, uh, and to use them to arrest, to beat, to threaten, to imprison, to do all they could in their power to harm the apostles, to keep the church uh, suppressed, oppressed, so that it wouldn't grow. But it did. But it did. The devil has many, many schemes, and these are just two of them. Internal corruption, external persecution, and it's not any different than today. So why is it that after 2,000 years of kings and empires and religions and et cetera, et cetera, trying to stamp out Christianity that it's the largest religion in the world? And again, I say one of the reasons for the Christian faith, one of the reasons why it is true is because it's a miraculous faith that God miraculously is upholding his church, in fact, growing his church. There's no other reason, there's no other explanation that defies human logic. God is the reason. And so he's the one who turns all things for good, we know. He turns evil for good, briefly, that's our second point there. Uh, we see his presence in the midst of persecution, uh, in the great power of the apostles giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, verse 33, chapter, uh, chapter uh, uh, three, uh, 4, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 33. Uh, chapter 5, verse 12, there's great grace upon them all, uh, many signs and wonders at the hands of the apostles, and so forth. And so what we see is that the irony, again, is that the church grew the more it was persecuted, the more from the outside it was, it, was, it was oppressed, the more it spread. The more it was infiltrated from the inside, the more it grew. Verse 14 again of chapter 5, a little summary. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. And we see this in the boldness of Peter and the apostles. We must obey God rather than men. Verse 29. We see it in the church actually rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus, verse 41. We see it in their constant teaching notice. And every day, in the temple, publicly, and from house to house, privately, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. So all this infiltration, those corruption, Satan infiltrating hearts, causing corruption in people's hearts and minds, bringing to the church dishonor, and all the outside persecution, despite all of that, more than ever, believers were added. More than ever, they rejoiced. More than ever, they taught. Nothing was going to stop them, except death itself. There was a great early Christian... Uh, preacher, theologian in North Africa, uh, in the great ancient uh, city of Carthage, uh, Tertullian, and he said this, very famous line, you, you might have heard this, something like this, kill us, torture, this is him writing to the, to the Roman Empire, to, uh, to, to the emperor himself, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust, the more you mow us down, the more we grow, the seed is the blood of Christians. You might have heard it like, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The same effect. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, 
grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. So we hear this morning, we, we see this morning in the, in the story here, uh, we see this internal corruption. We see this external persecution. Yet we see the Lord doing his work. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. What do we learn from this? How do we respond to this? What does it say to us as well? How can we grow ourselves? How can we ourselves learn from uh, the example of the early apostolic church? And just notice there are a few things to mention. That even in a time of internal pressure or external pressure, all brought to us by Satan, how can we, we respond? We may not be in the exact same situation, but there are some principles here for us to learn. And I might even say, as we sang that opening hymn this morning, that we might prepare our own hearts and our own lives. Should the Lord bring persecution to us? Or should the Lord cause within us internal corruption? First of all, we read this, this, this whole story here and, and we learn this. That despite whatever is happening internally or externally, we need to remain committed to each other in love. We have to remain committed to each other as brothers and sisters as a church family in love. It's right after chapter 4 where Peter and John were arrested that we read in our passage this morning, the church was of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. And soul. And again, verse 32 of chapter 4, they had everything in common. We've got to grow in our love for one another, with being of one heart, one soul towards each other, having our things in common. John Calvin, the great reformer, said of this passage, We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. If you read this story and doesn't move you to love your heart must be as hard as iron we have to grow in our love be committed together in our love that's what jesus said that's that's the mark that the world can see that god has sent his son to the world our love for one another secondly we read a story like this especially the story of ananias and sapphira and all of us as believers all of us as believers who have the Holy Spirit within our hearts, but I might say especially to our elders in this church. All of us, but especially our elders, must remain committed to what we call church discipline. We must be committed to church discipline. Now, that can mean two things. It can be the positive side of discipline, which is training and uh, a, a training in righteousness, as Paul calls it, uh, guiding, shepherding, counseling, leading, right? Helping us to all to grow together, and we all are responsible for that, for one another. But our elders especially take a role in that, a very, uh, a very prominent role in that. But there's also the other side, the flip side of discipline being the positive side. There's also that, that what we call that negative side of discipline, which is that there are times in which the church has internal corruption, uh, and that corruption has to be excised. Right? There's cancer in the church and it has to be cut out. There's corruption and it has to be purified. We must remain committed to that. Now, of course, with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, this is a case of immediate apostolic miraculous discipline. We, we can't repeat that. I don't expect uh, uh, Barton and Miranda... Uh, uh, Lule and Hansen to walk up here uh, like, uh, like uh, you know, Palpa- Emperor Palpatine and just shoot out force lightning at people. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. This is an immediate case of, you know, aps- apostolic, miraculous, unrepeatable discipline. The Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. They're, they're literally excommunicated from the church. But it's the principle of, of what they are doing, of disciplining a member living in sin, 
that we need to repeat, that we need to continue. Paul says later on in, in his letters that, that church discipline literally is taking a person from inside the church and you put them outside the church, he says. Why? You, you, you put them out there in the realm of Satan, not merely to punish, but to discipline. This one's different. Punishment is just, you know, get out of the church, you're, you're punished, right? You never come back. Discipline is you put the person outside the church in the realm of Satan. Why? So that, as Paul says, they can come to their senses, they can uh, repent of their sin and return and be received back in to the church. Discipline is meant to be corrective. There's a certain sin. It's, it is punished, but it's correctively uh, a, a corrective punishment to bring a person back, to come to your senses to realize what you've done and to return. And we see something here of that because the Lord is present. The Lord is present here with the church. And the, Lord is, uh, and, the, and, and the church is blessed. The church grows. And this is one of the ways by which that happens, church discipline. In fact, we, we read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that church discipline is an evidence to us of Christ's presence amongst us. What does Jesus say? What, what happens if we don't discipline erring brothers and sisters? What happens in Revelation 2 and 3? What are some of the images that he gives there of, of what he'll do to the church? He can spew you out. I can vomit you out. That's one image, right? What's another one? Remove the lampstand, right? But not our lampstand, right? His lampstand. What's the lampstand? Well, it's the Old Testament image of uh, the, 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 the menorah that actually gave light in that darkened temple, tabernacle complex. That is an image of the presence of the Lord with his people. And Jesus says that if we don't uh, discipline, if we don't cast out erring members for the correction purpose, then in fact he'll cast all of us out. He'll remove his lamp from us. And there might be a building here, there might be actually be some bodies in here, but he won't be here. He won't be here. That's how important it is for us to remain committed to church discipline. It's to purify the church and it's to bring the honor to the Lord and so that his presence would be with us in a way that blesses us, so that even if there has to be a surgery done, spiritual surgery in the congregation, it would actually grow after that. It's not just subtracting, it's also addition. Thirdly, the more we are, we learn this from these passages, the more that we are pressured not to speak about Jesus, the more we need to speak. The more we're pressured not to speak about him, the more we must. Recall back what we saw last Sunday in chapter 4, verse 29, that the church prayed for its continued boldness. Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And what do we see right after that? They, they prayed the prayer. Notice that. The prayer is prayed. Lord, give your servants boldness. And they go out with boldness. They're arrested again. Then what? They're still bold, right? God answers prayer. We see that here. So the more that we are pressured not to speak, the more we must. And despite here, you have, you have the high priest strictly charging not to do this. They do it anyway. Why? We must obey God rather than men. And because we obey God... We, he gives an increase, we might say, of his spirit so that we can witness even more so of his truthfulness. We must obey God rather than men. That's the kind of boldness that we've got to have. We must obey God rather than men. Fourth, we need to count it all joy when we suffer because when we do, it shows us God's grace. He, that he's counted as, notice verse 42, counted worthy to suffer dishonor 
for the name. Count it all joy. Count it all joy when and if you suffer as a Christian for being a Christian. Because when you do suffer in that way, it shows you the grace of God resting upon you, that he has counted you worthy to suffer for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, humanly speaking, that makes no sense. This is supernatural. To our wisdom, it makes no sense. To the world's wisdom, it makes no sense. Why would Christians want, why would Christians say that they're, they're being blessed by suffering? Do they have a martyrdom complex? No. It's that we are counted worthy to suffer with Jesus. Because we know ultimately that Jesus wins. Right? We shouldn't have any fear. We shouldn't have any fear. We know that he wins. And we can sing, for example, one of our, our hymns, The Church is One Foundation. One of the verses says this, and I'll close here. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend. To guide us, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, and false sons in her pale, so those outside who hate and those within, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. We can take that to the bank this morning, can't we? That Jesus is present with his church, he's building it, and he's doing it despite and in the very face of the gates of hell. No opposition inside or outside is going to stop him, and we've got to be confident in that. And so let's go out with full of love for each other, Let's go out committed to the practice of church discipline, of, of keeping the church pure, of admonishing one another and guiding one another. Let's go out with boldness and not being afraid to speak for Jesus. And if we are persecuted, to count it all joy. To count it all joy because we belong to Jesus Christ. And he, he is, as they say these days, he is the right side of human history. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the word. We thank you for encouraging us. And we pray that you would help us today to take these uh, words to heart and to apply them, to live them out. And we pray for our church family, Lord, that we would all uh, grow in these uh, wonderful truths that you give to us in this book of Acts. Uh, And may we hear your voice. May it be a living letter to us, a a living book to us, to guide and sustain us uh, in our pilgrim journey. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. amen.